0: Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, episode number 88. With Dr. Andrew Newberg, an American neuroscientist who's the Director of Research at the Marcus Institute of Integrative Health at Thomas Jefferson's University Hospital, And the author of 10 books translated into six languages and over 200 articles on neuroimaging and neuropsychiatric disorders, and also on neuroscience and religion. My name is Andrea Samadhi. And if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research. Along with high performing experts who've risen to the top of their field with specific ideas or strategies that you can implement immediately, whether you're an educator or in the corporate space to take your results to the next level. If we want to improve our social, emotional and cognitive abilities, it all starts with an understanding of our brain. I am thrilled to have this opportunity to speak with Andrew, as he's been exploring the topic of neurotheology, which addresses the relationship between the brain and religious experiences since his teenage years. Andrew is the co-author of the best-selling book, How God Changes Your Brain, which was chosen by Oprah for her book club that same year in 2009, and Why God Won't Go Away, Brain Science and the Biology of Belief, which both explore the relationship between neuroscience and spiritual experience. He's also co-authored Words Can Change Your Brain, Why We Believe What We Believe, uncovering our biological need for meaning, spirituality, and truth, and The Mystical Mind, probing the biology of belief. The latter book received the 2000 Award for Outstanding Books in Theology and the Natural Sciences, presented by the Center for Theology and Natural Sciences, which is an organization that focuses on building bridges between theology and science. I've got some powerful, insightful, thought-provoking questions for Andy, and I know you'll find this topic interesting, especially with his ability to share his insights and years of research from the point of view of pure science. Welcome, Andy, and thank you so much for being here for this fascinating topic today.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: Well, for anyone who knows your schedule, Andy, this is a rare opportunity. And I am so grateful for Mark Waldman for connecting us after the webinar that you did last week. And you addressed many of these powerful and mind-boggling questions that I'm going to ask you today on that webinar. But I just know that people around the world will benefit from this. Um, and we the podcast does reach over 110 countries right now. So it's, wow, it's pretty pretty exciting that people around the world, they they were just thrilled with this. Um, I actually posted, uh, before we had set our time together, I posted that I was going to be interviewing you and I just put a graphic together with your book, How God Changes Your Brain and the messages started coming in all over the world. People were like, I've got to watch this episode and and I thought, Andy better show up for me. So thank you. That's the only
1: reason I showed up. (laughs) That's
0: funny. Well, so can we just start with this topic? Because it just seems like everybody wants to know this. Where did your interest in religion and the human brain begin? What is neurotheology and what does neuroscience say about whether there's a God or not?
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) That's (laughs) just three big questions. so, uh, well, I mean, as far as my own background goes and my own interest, uh, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I mean, I've really been thinking about these things since I was a kid. Um, I, I was just always, um, I had this burning question, which to me was always kind of the fundamental big question about how do we know what's real and uh, how do we understand what reality is and whether what we, we think is real uh, is real. And, and I think a lot of that did stem from my, um, my concern, if you will, or or my my lack of understanding about why there were so many different religions, why there were so many different political perspectives, uh, especially obviously in today's world, um, and uh, you know, to me it's like if we're all looking at the same world, why don't we just all think the same thing? And so uh, clearly we don't. And um, and so I said, well, let me you know let me start by looking at the human brain. Let me try to understand theoretically. That's the part of us that is interpreting the information that's coming into us and, and making some sense out of the world around us. So I so said, let me, let me start with science and looking at the brain and how that works. But as I, as I went through my training, I began to realize that, that science didn't, you know, while science is fantastic, um, it didn't really have the ability to answer certain fundamental questions about the nature of consciousness uh, and, uh, and, and the nature of reality, and at least in terms of how we perceive it. And so I got into looking at different philosophical perspectives and different spiritual perspectives as well. Uh, and all of this stuff was kind of swirling around in my own mind, thinking about how do I kind of blend all this together? And I had the good fortune when I was in medical school to uh, to connect with two fantastic mentors, one who was in the, the neuroimaging field, which is what I got into and became a, a kind of a fundamental part of my career, uh, using brain imaging to study Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and depression and so forth. Uh, And then also with another uh, uh, gentleman who was a psychiatrist by training. And uh, he had been thinking about the relationship between the brain and religion for also, for an even longer time. And at some point there was this little light bulb that went off I said, well, gee, if we're studying the brain of of people with Alzheimer's, why can't we study the brain of people who are religious or spiritual or doing certain practices like meditation and prayer? And that was what launched our, our studies into this. And, uh, and you know, over the last 25 years or so, we've studied maybe four or 500 people doing all different kinds of practices from all different kinds of traditions. And, and it, it has really, I think, advanced this whole idea of neurotheology. Now, interestingly, um, the very first mention of the term, uh, at least that I could find, came from an, uh, a novel in the early 1960s by Aldous Huxley Uh, called The Island, and it talks about this futuristic society that does all this kind of weird stuff, and one of the things is neurotheology, but he doesn't really describe it uh, beyond that. Um, So the way I usually define neurotheology is that it is a field of study that is designed to look at the relationship between the brain and our religious and spiritual selves. Uh, And uh, with that in mind, I think there's a couple of really important aspects of that that i'd like to stress so one of them is that it is a two-way street meaning that it's not just science looking at religion it's not just theology or religion trying to analyze the the value of science but it is the two of these sides together uh, coming together to look at each other and also ultimately to help us understand ourselves and so you know if you think historically the two kind of greatest forces in human history have been science and technology on one side and religion and spirituality on the other. So why not bring them together uh, in some way that hopefully is constructive and, and beneficial? And so, so one of the uh, important concepts in neurotheology is that it's it's a very multidisciplinary and it's not really take, trying to take one side or the other, but really trying to, to help us understand ourselves. And And then the other thing I like to say about neurotheology, at least as a term, if it's going to work as the, the term that we use for this field, is that the neuro side and the theology side have to be expanded pretty substantially. So the neuro side includes neuroscience, neuroimaging, uh, it includes medicine, you know, looking at the various ways in which our brain and body are interconnected with each other. And uh, and, and so, you know, anthropology, um, you know, uh, psychology, all these different ways in which we think about it, the, the neuroish side of who we are. And then the theology side is also not just theology proper which is a specific discipline designed to kind of analytically look at a given religious tradition but needs to also be expanded to include things like religious beliefs and practices and experiences, mystical experiences and so forth, uh, you know, morals, um, maybe even philosophical questions about free will, everything that kind of spills over into how we use religious and spiritual ideas to help us understand the world and how we experience that. So with that in mind, you know that to me is what neurotheology is ultimately about, and then it helps us to begin to you know do these kinds of studies where we look at the brain, and um, and I guess that was your your the third question, which is you know how does our brain kind of intersect with with religion and spirituality, and I I guess to me. Um, a couple of real, you know, kind of main take-home messages about the research that we've done, and like I said, we've studied maybe four or five hundred people doing all different kinds of practices, and and there are other colleagues who have done, you know, uh, additional research as well. Um, I think one important point is is that there does not seem to be just you know one part of the brain that is involved in spirituality. It's not like when you walk into church, this one little part of the brain lights up and we feel spiritual, and then when we walk out of the church, it it goes away. Um, you know, and and I think when people, you know, anybody who's had any kind of spiritual experience or or had some type of you know importance of religion in their lives, uh, understands that there are emotional aspects, there are experiential aspects, there are social aspects. Uh, there's cognitive and philosophical aspects. So um, you know, it, from my view, and when we look at our brain scans and the models that we've developed in terms of the areas of our brain that are involved in this. Um, it's really virtually the entire brain that gets involved you know so if there's there's a part of our brain that uh is the spiritual part it's really the whole thing and uh i'm in the center of integrative medicine so we recognize the the link between our brain and body and therefore everything that happens up here is also kind of happening throughout our body in certain ways and um and so it's really all of us um which is the spiritual part of ourselves so our biology and our spirituality are, are really intimately intertwined. And again, part of the, the goal of neurotheology is to try to tease that out and to understand that and then understand uh, what that means and to think about any, you know, the practical applications of that all the way to the very esoteric philosophical implications of it.
0: Wow, that's deep and it's it's a lot to think about. And that's why we brought you on here just to dive deep into this. And, and I have to ask this question here because I grew up going to church every Sunday and read and studied the Bible. And I really do believe in the 10 commandments, but I still don't know how I would explain God other than the fact I just know he exists. Like there's times when I'm in nature, I feel more connected. And I know you've scanned the brains of Franciscan nuns and chartered the neurological changes that happen in their brains but what do you think God is from your research? Is it the same as consciousness? Is it like, how would we even go and dive in and explain it? Um, Is there, and you said, there's not even a certain area of your brain that connects religion to my beliefs. Like you couldn't put me in a brain scan and say, oh, she believes or not, right?
1: Correct. Well, you know, uh, one of the—I wrote a book called *The Principles of Neurotheology* and um, really designed to sort of think about how we begin to tackle all these kinds of questions. And and the question that you ask is, is a very central issue for for obviously the field of neurotheology and and for the study of religion and spirituality. Um, one of the things that I think is is a, a very important part of what neurotheology kind of asks us to do uh, is to ask questions. And so when it comes to what is the nature of God, what is the, you know, what is free will, what is consciousness? Um, there are lots of ways of trying to answer that question. And part of what we have to do is not be afraid of thinking about all the ways in which we can address that question. And, um, you know, when we talk about definitions, I could, I can go to the Bible. And I say, you know, this is, is what it says God is, or this is what it says being religious is. Um, I can go to, The great theologians of history and Saint Anselm and and, uh, Aquinas and and so forth, and and I can look at their definitions. Um, I can go to a church or a synagogue and I can ask each of the congregants, what do you think? And and in our book, How God Changes Your Brain, one of the things, uh, one of the sort of cute little studies that we did, if you will, um, was we asked people to draw a picture of God the way they would, you know, when they think about God, what do they envision? And it was really fascinating to see how people drew God. Um, you know, uh, about twenty percent of people drew some kind of face, something anthropomorphic. You know, kind of humanized version of God. Um, I would say about a, a third of people drew some kind of. Uh, you mentioned nature. You know, so they would just draw like a nature scene, and very bucolic. You know, hills and you know mountains and stuff like that. Um, another third of the people. Would actually draw some type of um, uh, some type of abstract uh, picture, so swirls, um, a heart, uh, you know, some type of you know interesting design or something like that, uh, rainbow kind of thing, and um, and so that was interesting. And then uh, what I found actually was particularly interesting was that there was a group of about maybe ten or fifteen percent who actually um, left it blank. And we weren't satisfied with just getting the pictures. We asked people to describe them because we didn't want to put our own biases into interpreting these things. And the responses on the blanks were actually really interesting because some of the people who left it blank were, uh, were atheists. And they said, well, there is no God, I'm leaving it blank. Mm-hmm. Um, there was another group of people who left it blank who were deeply religious individuals who said, God is undrawable and left it blank yeah. so you know these are the kinds of things that we can get at to try to understand an answer to your kind of a question you know who uh, who do we ask do we ask the theologians do we ask the philosophers do we ask the sociologists the you know the neuroscientists and and most importantly the general you know the general population what they think uh you know i i i tend to state that you know because our each brain is so unique if there's you know seven and a half billion people in the world, there's seven and a half billion religions in the world. And there's seven and a half billion ideas about God. Now, obviously, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and most people would probably talk about God as an ultimate, you know, being or, or uh, consciousness or spiritual power. But, uh, but again, you know, one of the even in your question, when you were talking about, like, you know, how does that relate to consciousness? Uh, when we look at people who have had intense spiritual experiences, one of the I think fascinating questions about it is that everyone describes them a little bit differently, and so some people say that you know when they connect with God they felt love, and other people felt awe, and some people felt a power, and some people felt energy, and um, and so you know are are they fundamentally the same experience that people are now describing differently based on their beliefs or their culture or whatever, uh, or are they literally different experiences? And and again, I mean, arguably if God is infinite and Uh, can manifest in any different kind of way, then yeah, you know, it's it's the the famous, um, you know, uh, story about, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of flies buzzing around an elephant. And, you know, one of them thinks an elephant is a tusk, and one of them thinks it's a trunk, and one of them thinks it's a tail. And they're all right, but they're also all wrong. I mean, none of them really fully uh, are able to capture exactly what that is. So, uh, you know, clearly, uh, the concept of God is something that is kind of beyond human comprehension, but that being said, we still go about trying to comprehend it.
0: (laughs) And ask questions and keep learning and keep reading books like yours, (laughs) It was very insightful. Um, I know you covered this on the training that you did for us last week with Mark, Mark Waldman's group, but I think it's so important to talk about today. And it's about the power of intercessory prayer or praying on behalf of others. And it's it's actually a component in Dan Siegel's Wheel of Awareness meditation. So within his meditation, he asks you to send loving kindness to people in our communities and people may be far away. But what does your research say about praying for someone far away? Can we even measure, like what if somebody's praying but not praying right? Like not sending the right loving intention to saying, oh, I'm praying for them, but is there a way to measure if you're doing this the right way and can we really impact people from far away?
1: Right. Well, you know, this is um, uh, over the years uh, as I have done this kind of research, um, one of the things as a researcher that I get excited about are thinking about these methodological challenges and, you know, studying spirituality, studying prayer um, is not an easy thing to do no matter how you're trying to do it. And so, it raises lots of fascinating scientific questions, uh, as well as spiritual questions. In fact, you know, one of the things I always remind my colleagues about when I give a talk to a group of psychiatrists or or neuroscientists is that this whole field of research really challenges science, because you're trying to grapple with things that are very difficult to hold on to and to to measure in in any kind of accurate way. So, you know, when it comes to things like intercessory prayer, uh, well, first of all, let's start with the obvious, which is that for the person doing the praying, there seems to be, you know, benefit uh, to, to them. You know, it, it helps them when you think loving thoughts, um, data shows that you calm your brain down, you feel better, you reduce your stress, you reduce your anxiety and depression. And so um, there is a direct benefit to the people who are even starting to do that kind of a practice. But obviously the more interesting question is, well, but are you actually able to affect somebody at a distance? And um, yeah. Uh, uh, now, while I personally haven't done a lot of specific research looking at intercessory prayer practices, um, the data that exists out there, and there are a number of studies that have looked at this, um, some have shown an effect. Uh, meaning, you know, sometimes people are praying for uh, patients who are in the hospital. That that's a that's a typical model for these studies um, to try to recover faster from heart surgery or cancer or whatever. And uh, you know, for the for the most part, like I said, a number of studies have shown that. Those people who are being prayed for get out of the hospital you know on average a little bit earlier, so maybe a half a day earlier, you know, which is a statistically significant difference. Um, there have been some other studies that have shown that it hasn't specifically worked, so I think um in terms of the actual research, we still have to demonstrate this a little bit more specifically i don't I, you know I don't think we know for sure if it does work, but some of the challenges with that is are are we doing you know are they even doing the studies the right way, and you know you mentioned like are they praying correctly um and what does that mean to pray correctly so uh you know and and I think that you know a lot of these studies are designed for people to pray you know they they hand me you know they would hand me a name, John Smith, who's over in you know uh, at u c l a or something like that well, that's you know two thousand miles away, and I don't know who this person is. I would think that that could be completely different than me praying for my father or something like that who's Absolutely. in the hospital and you know so uh but it raises all kinds of really interesting if, assuming that there is an effect you get all these very interesting questions does it matter if you have you know 10 people praying for somebody instead of five people if you get double the effect mm-hmm. um does it matter if the people who are praying are deeply religious people who really believe in the prayers that they're doing versus just pulling a bunch of people off the street and saying here just think some good thoughts for these people Um, does the distance matter? Um, you know, is it different if, you know, I live in Philadelphia, so if I pray for somebody at a Philadelphia hospital, is that more effective than praying for somebody in California? Um, and then ultimately there is the, the bigger mechanistic question, which is, uh, let's assume that for a moment that this does work, uh, what exactly is happening? You know, is, is the prayer going up to God and then God is truly intervening for this individual? uh, is it human consciousness in some way that kind of reaches across? And certainly there are people who make that argument as well. Um, so, you know, we, we don't know, and, and that is part of what we want to try to find out in some way, you know, what is the mechanism by which these things work? Uh, do they work? Uh, and if so, how, and, uh, if so, what are the ways of sort of optimizing it? So, uh, it's a great area, you know, it's a, I talk about um, neurotheology being kind of a big jigsaw puzzle that has lots of little, you know, lots of individual pieces. I don't know if I should say little pieces, but lots of individual pieces. Uh, and, and intercessory prayer is one of them. And it's a very fast, you know, how does our, it, wouldn't it be great to scan the brain and to see, you know, if, if it, you know, at the times that it does work, that a person's brain pattern is different than the times that it doesn't work. Um, so all kinds of really interesting questions for us to, that lie ahead.
0: That's mind boggling. I love this this is so interesting but um you also mentioned last week that you did a brain scan uh in a a study that you were doing you were doing an mri and they measured your brain and your memory and they asked you to remember 10 words and this caught my attention because i actually just had a spec scan done on my brain and the results showed that i scored very low on recall memory i actually got one out of ten And, you know, self-evaluation, I'm like, that's accurate because for the life of me, I couldn't remember these 10 words that like cheese and bread and whatever, they're just random words. But I can remember conversations from 30 years ago if emotion was attacked and like speeches people said, I can quote them from 12 years ago so from the scans that you've done what do you think are good strategies for people like me that would be looking to improve memory recall because i know it's going to become important as i'm aging um how did you do on that memory test and then what other techniques have you seen people use to improve their memory
1: well they didn't tell me how i did so i don't (laughs) know um well you know i mean we're we're in the process actually of writing a book on on brain health and um and you know one of the things that we frequently talk to our patients about is everybody has to recognize what their own strengths and weaknesses are so for example, I wouldn't say that you have bad memory; it's just that you have different ty- you know your your ability to remember different things cuts across different domains of memory, and some people are really good at remembering pictures, some are really good at remembering names, some are really good at remembering events. Um, and so, you know, uh, one of the things that we always have to try to do is, is use our strengths. Um, and to the extent that we can use those strengths to perhaps help us in other domains, you know, that could be something that might be helpful. So, for example, um, you know, if you were being asked to remember just a random set of 10 words, maybe if you could have woven that into a speech that as you were listening to the words, you could have remembered the speech and then remembered the words. Um, so, so we do try to get people to sort of, you know, use where their strengths are, and then, you know, if they're not really good with names, then try to remember, you know, some characteristic about the the person that you can then attach the name to, and and then these are kind of traditional learning techniques as well. Um, but the whole key is is that you have to kind of recognize where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are, and then try to uti- try to utilize the strengths and and use them to help uh, overcome where some of the weaknesses are. Um, I think the other thing that uh, uh, is is also important is to think about, um, you know, how does one try to improve your brain uh, over time? And there, I often use the the muscle analogy, um, because uh, what what I'll say to people is, you know, look, um, if you want to become a really good basketball player, well, you've got to practice basketball, you know, you've got to shoot a lot of baskets, uh, basketballs, and you got to do a lot of layups and stuff like that. And so if you do that over and over and over again, um, there's a training effect and your muscles get used to that. And that's in part because your brain gets used to it. So your brain changes over time to develop the skills and the the motor skills and the coordination that you need for that particular thing. Um, If you want to become a really good basketball player, you don't go out and hit baseballs. Um, You know, that's different, different domains. And just because you're good at one doesn't make you good at the other. Now, on the other hand, um, whether you want to be a good baseball player, a good basketball player, a good football player, you might lift weights because, you know, the stronger you are, the better you are in all of them. Um, you might run or, or do, you know, aerobic exercise because the better shape you're in, the better you'll be able to to do the different things that you're doing. And so the brain works the same kind of way. Um, if you love to do crossword puzzles and you do crossword puzzles a lot, you're going to get really good at doing crossword puzzles. But that doesn't inherently mean that you are going to be you know that that you're going to remember where you put your keys uh or you're going to remember the name of that person that you just met you're going to get really good at doing crossword puzzles but then there are the more general practices like lifting weights or or doing aerobic exercise um, that can be good no matter what and those specifically include things like meditation uh prayer practices can be very good general training techniques because they help with concentration They help to modulate your your stress levels so that you can perform well even under duress and so when you do these kinds of practices over time and and we have brain scan studies that show this that you know you change the way your brain works we did a study of a meditation practice called Kirtan kriya where it's a very concentrated practice and you activate your funnel lobes which is what happens in a lot of these practices whenever you're concentrating and so we showed that over time uh, as people did this practice, even at rest, their frontal lobes were more active and that correlated with improvements in their concentration in general. And so, you know, we know that these kinds of practices, meditation in particular, um, tends to kind of cut across a lot of different domains to help people. But so so one strategy is to try to do those general kinds of practices like meditation. And then the other, as, as, as Mark Waldman and I often talk about in our books, is that we have all these different domains. We have all these different ways of doing memory. We have, you know, emotions and all that. The more you use all the different parts of your brain, the better off you are. So don't just do crossword puzzles, but do crossword puzzles, do Sudoku and take a walk outside, listen to a, a podcast on the political system, listen, you know, read a book on uh, neuroscience, um, you know, so the more you do all of you know, talk to your friends about, you know, the world or whatever, so the more you do all of these different things, the better your overall brain function will become.
0: Now you, you do talk about that with, I, th- I think there's a case study in your book. Um, uh, I think it was how God changes your brain with a guy named Gus. He was a construction worker and he had a, a weak memory and you just put right. him on a meditation program and-
1: his, Yeah, that was the Kirtan Kriya meditation, right? Oh, and was uh, it?
0: Okay. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know, uh, <laughs> he was this very kind of rough and tumble kind of guy. And I was like, "Mm, here, you know, we'll see how this guy does. And uh, he was really cute about the whole thing and he really got into it. And uh, apparently um, I don't know if he said this in the book, but he he got up very early every day. So he started to do this at like three or four o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and it's a, um, it's a singing meditation. So, uh, and, and uh, the person that we had uh, the audio tape, uh, one of the things it tells you to do is to really kind of you know, belt it out. <laughs> so at three or four o'clock in the morning, he's in his apartment complex belting out this meditation. Um, and uh, I think he started to do it a little quieter. He did it a little later in the day. But uh, yeah, you know, he, he really loved it. Um, you know, uh, part of why I liked it as a practice, you know, as a as as a clinician, um, you know, we always try to look for things that are, are more simple, uh, easy, obviously low cost. I mean, you know, there's a lot of practical pieces to all of this. Um, you know, people say, well, you know, if I, if I, if you tell me to meditate two hours a day, if I had two hours a day to meditate, I wouldn't be as stressed as I am. So, um, but this particular practice is very nice because it's 12 minutes a day. hard for people to say, I don't have 12 minutes. Right. Um, but, um, and, and, and that is an important point also, which is that whatever things people do, whatever practices people try to do, um, it's important for it to be something that they can do, mm-hmm. um, that they feel comfortable with, that they feel that they can really engage because that's also another piece of all of this that we have learned over the years, which is that the, you know, to just go through the motions of a practice um, to just sit in church and not really, you know, but be on your phone, you're not really getting much out of that. Um, You, you know, the more involved you are, the more engaged you are, the more your brain ultimately gets out of everything. So, uh, and that's true really across the board and includes spirituality, but it includes, Uh, you know, training and education and all that, that that you you need to be doing things that you really care about and that you can do and enjoy. And the more you do that, then the the bigger the impact will be.
0: Well, it makes complete sense. And it's nice to to hear that meditation is not just for certain people, that it can be mainstream, which is nice to see. And I know you mentioned that you're writing a book right now on health and it's, it's kind of an interest for me, especially after getting my brain scan and seeing all these areas that, you know, we, we want to make sure that the next 50 plus years of our life are healthy. Um, We all know that the staples like sleep, diet and exercise are important for protecting the aging brain. Well, what right now are you seeing? Is there anything else that you're seeing is important for us to practice to preserve our brain health?
1: Well, you know, you mentioned a couple of the, the fundamentals, and uh, you know, and and we shouldn't gloss over them because they are so important. So things like diet and nutrition, um, you know, in our integrative medicine practices here, I mean, we just see so many people coming in, and you start getting, you know, very uh, granular in terms of their diet and what they eat, and a lot of people do not eat eat well. Um, you know, they often eat a lot of processed foods, and they cheat a lot on their diets. And they, uh, you know, so so we really try to get people to a much more uh, a much healthier plant-based, uh, protein-based kind of diet. Uh, there's been a lot of data out there, uh, including some of my other colleagues as well, who have, where we've shown that um, you know just fixing your diet alone can be so fundamentally important to keeping your brain healthy because one, it begins to provide the right nutrients for your brain. But the other problem is that when you're eating a lot of these, um, you know, problematic foods, if you will, uh, the, you know, the processed foods and, and uh, you know, red meats and dairy products and things like that, that there, there's a lot of inflammatory molecules that are in those foods. And so uh, they cause inflammation in the body. And it's almost as if you're sort of always living with this little low grade and you know, it's like, you're almost always fighting the cold type of thing. And how do people feel when you, when you're doing that? Well, you're, you feel brain fog and you don't feel, you know, sharp and your concentration is down. Um, so, so that is certainly an important thing. Um, getting the right, you know, getting the right amount of sleep also, you know, fundamental and, and people do need to kind of look at that and, um, you know, get, if they really have problems with it, consider you know a more formal evaluation, doing a sleep study and making sure that they don't have things like, sleep apnea and so forth. Um, very, very important. And maybe thinking about a meditation practice or other sort of stress relieving practices at night, um, to help, uh, with their, you know, help them to get a good night's sleep and to maintain that level of sleep. Um, you know, we, we also find some, uh, interesting things, uh, as well. Uh, one of Mark's favorites is yawning. Um, and so, you know, uh, why do we yawn? Uh, we yawn when we are tired and it's, it's actually a way for our brain to kind of wake itself up. So if you begin to just actually like fake a few yawns, you know, and, and then you, you ultimately start to do this, um, more naturally. And if you do it over a period of a couple of minutes, um, you know, you're bringing in more oxygen into your brain. There's some theories that, um, that the airflow that goes kind of comes up into your nasal passages uh, helps to cool the brain down and ultimately allow the brain to function more effectively. So uh, there's that. And, um, and then maybe the last thing to just mention briefly for everyone is, is the notion of, of what we say, having faith, being optimistic. You know, when, when you kind of follow a spiritual path, when you uh, feel that the world is, is fundamentally a good place, when you're optimistic about the future, Uh, there's a lot of data that support the idea that those positive emotions and that positive outlook on things uh, is really very good for you. It's very good for your brain. It's very good for your health. Uh, It reduces your mortality rates um, and uh, reduces your risk of getting heart disease and and, uh, other disorders. So, uh, you know, having that faith, whether it is a more secular based optimism or something truly spiritual uh, all of those seem to be beneficial in terms of helping people to to do better and keep their brain and their body as healthy as possible.
0: It's also interesting. We can be doing all those things and think that we're doing them all right, and then you go get a blood test and something shows up. That you know, just knowing your numbers is is another strategy too, because you just don't know unless you look. Unless you look at certain parts of your health you th- you think you're doing well and then it's like right in front of you oh why is this so high what am i doing you know
1: right absolutely i mean we we have an executive health program and and you know we do some very thorough laboratory testing and uh, and yeah you know i mean it, it is amazing uh how many people um have different issues and problems that they don't realize and so it is you know uh, it's not necessarily that you have to get checked you know every six months or every year, even if you're really really healthy and you 're feeling great but it's certainly important to do it once in a while to make sure that you do understand you know where you are with things and um uh, and what is the best kind of path forward uh so that you can manage things as appropriately as possible uh, so many things we don't even feel like our cholesterol levels and stuff like that, but if your cholesterol levels are high um you know, you need to understand that. You need to be taking that into consideration. You need to be thinking about it. There's a lot of new genetic testing these days. Um, and sometimes that can help because you do want to do the best that you can at understanding where your strengths and weaknesses are, both in terms of how your brain works, but also how your body works. And, you know, if, if cholesterol is not a problem for you, that's great. And then you can, you know, worry about other things. But if it is a problem for you, then, you know, you, you do want to manage it and you want to manage it effectively
0: absolutely well um we we have covered paradigms on this podcast with different episodes we've talked about like how we can change them but i know that you covered this um a little bit in the past i've heard you talking about it but from your experience of working with the brain what are beliefs how are how do they form where are they stored and how do we change outdated beliefs that we've had from the past that don't help us or serve us in the future?
1: Well, you know, our, our beliefs really are comprised of our emotions, our cognitive processes, um, the social interactions, and the memories that we form from all of that, uh, and um, and and they're 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 embedded within the wiring of the brain. They become biological. You know that there is there is something that attaches in our brain to a given idea, a given belief, uh, a given memory. And, um, and one of the things we talk about in, in our book, why we believe what we believe is that, you know, on one hand, we need to understand where all those beliefs come from. And obviously, a lot of them do come from outside, you know, people who we talk to are, are obviously our parents first, uh, who teach us the beliefs often about religion and spirituality, but just, you know, not to turn your glass upside down, uh, you know, clean up your room, uh, you know, just some basic morals about the world. And then we learn from our teachers and our friends and, and, and our you know people in the world uh celebrities and politicians and so forth uh so our beliefs come from a lot of different sources and then of course we you know we think about them as well um what is interesting is that uh as it, as these beliefs get written into uh, the neural connections of our brain they become stronger and stronger Praise that neurons that fire together wire together, and that you know there's a, there's a basis behind that, but the more you focus on anything, um, the more that belief becomes ingrained in who you are so if you are uh, a Muslim, um, the more you read the Quran, the more you do Muslim prayers, then those are the beliefs that become a part of your brain if you're Christian, you know the same thing and and the same is true for academics and for politics and, and everything. Um, when those beliefs work for you and and help you to be a good person and a, a good you know a compassionate person and someone who's successful and, and good in society and helpful to other people, then all of that's great. Um, but there are times where there are negative beliefs that that creep in even in even in somebody who's generally doing really well. Uh, and obviously, there are people who really struggle in the world and deal with um, you know very negative beliefs about themselves about the world around them. Um, they can lead to anxiety and depression, and fear and anger. Um, you know, that changing them is difficult. You know, the, as I said, these, these are written into the neural connections of our brain and it literally takes neuronal energy to break them. But the good news is is that they can be broken and there are ways of trying to, you know, the, the, the other, the other phrases, use it or lose it. And so if you redirect your beliefs from, negative, you know, hateful, angered uh, beliefs into something that is more compassionate. We talked about uh, earlier on doing a a meditation on sending loving and compassionate thoughts to people. Well, when you do that, you don't send hate, you know, you don't have those hateful feelings, you don't have anger and so forth. Uh, And over time, your brain will literally shift in terms of its physiology, uh, as well as in the beliefs that you actually hold. So no matter how old you are, um, your brain can always change, and it can always start to adapt towards something different. Um, and of course, it can go in both directions. So the more, you know, this is this is the problem that a lot of us face in, in the United States today, that, you know, we have certain political beliefs. And so we watch the news that supports those beliefs and gets us upset and gets us angry. And, and it just, you know, kind of keeps cycling instead of saying, well, you know, let me hear what the other side has to say. Let me let me stop focusing on the negative and let me find the good news in the world. Let me find the people who are helping other people instead of the people who are harming other people, uh, and, and work in, in those kinds of directions. And again, it's, it's not, you know, there's no magic way to do it per se. It it takes effort. It takes time, but it is doable. Um, and you know, in maybe the last thing to say about that is that in our book, how enlightenment changes your brain, um, Uh, you know, when uh, every once in a while people have these really profound spiritual experiences, enlightenment experiences, if you will. And what the data shows is that, um, you know, pretty much anyone can have these experiences. So they are available to everyone. Um, For some, it happens out of the blue. Um, For other people, they have a lifetime of striving for them. But what's particularly fascinating about it is that whenever they do happen to occur for somebody, um, they are almost uniformly considered to be extremely positive and powerful and transformative. And the one, you know, from a neuroscience perspective, one of the really interesting things about those experiences is that even though they you know, last, you know, literally seconds or, or minutes, um, they they seem to rewire the whole brain. Um, they completely change how the person thinks about their world and, and thinks about themselves. And so, uh, you know, there there are a lot of different ways in which our brain can change, either very, very slowly over time or sometimes, you know, just like that. But um, they can all lead to very positive ways of thinking about things.
0: Well, these are some powerful concepts, Andy, to think about. In closing, is there anything that you think is really important that we've missed that we haven't discussed today?
1: Well, I think that, um, I mean, maybe the thing that i would just leave people with um goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning in some regard and part of why i got into all of this is you know how do we know what reality is how do we experience reality and what i like to say to everyone and this came about in our in our book on beliefs is that our brains have access to the most infinitesimal percentage of all the information that's out there in the universe and Yet actually does a reasonably good job at telling us that we understand what's going on in the world, uh, and gives us, you know, gives us a reason to get up in the morning, kind of thing. Uh, but on the other hand, we have to be careful about that because so often we think that we actually fully understand the world. When again, we're literally getting, you know, I actually tried to do a calculation one time, and I got to about ten to the minus sixty-seven percent. So point zero zero with sixty-seven zeros in a one. Um, uh, uh, the information that is accessible to us and so and then we our brain with its genetics and, and our environment and our parents and our friends and all these other factors you know all of our brains are in the same boat in the sense that we're all looking out at the world trying to make some sense out of it with whatever pieces of information we can get and come up with something that seems to work so it is not a surprise that we all come up with different perspectives on things and that we have sometimes radically different views. Um, and so, uh, you know, it kind of gets back to that fundamental question I have. It, it's not a surprise that we have these different views, but perhaps by understanding this, we recognize the, va- the value of being compassionate and open and understanding to people who do come to ideas that are different than ours, because it's not that they're fundamentally evil necessarily or bad people or whatever. It's just that their brains are looking at the world in a slightly different way than we are. And then ultimately that brings them to the conclusion. So, so I, you know, one of the, the to me, one of the take home messages of neurotheology is a respect and compassion and, and an understanding of how people come to these different ideas and that um, it may be okay that we all come to those different ideas. We have to figure out, you know, how to, bring us together in that regard and find ways of kind of using the distinct the distinctions in those ideas to help all of us try to understand ourselves and our relationship to the world more effectively
0: what a positive end note there andy thank you so much for your time for sharing these powerful concepts on neurotheology the aging brain there was just so much in there. Thank you so much for this. Um, I'm looking forward to your book on health. When is that coming out?
1: Uh, probably sometime next year. We're just in the okay. process of finishing it. So
0: Incredible. I, I look forward to that. I've put all your books in the show notes and thank you so much. You have a wonderful rest
1: of your day. Thank you so much.